also sets up our next speaker very well, who is a colleague of yours at UCSF, Dr. Monica Gandhi, who is the uh, director of the UCSF CFAR. She works out of San Francisco General Hospital, um, and she's going to take us into some details about health disparities and practical ways forward in terms of what we can do to reach these populations. Dr. Buckbinder just gave a hint of that, and um, Dr. Gandhi will finish uh, that story for us. So welcome, Monica. Thank you very much. Um, I do think that uh, you know a lot of the innovations I'm talking about, going to talk about here are actually already, were just summarized by Dr. Buckbinder, because um, I do think that, that the HIV program and the prevention program at the San Francisco DPH is leading the way in terms of trying to address these disparities. So I may um, go a little more quickly through that and think of some more creative ways to think about disparities um, using the long acting injectables. So, um, you know, I'm tasked to, to talk about these hard to reach populations and, uh, and uh, Dr. Buckminder really went over this already, but we just have data point after data point that's showing us that there are racial and ethnic minority differences in the uptake of PrEP. And, um, you know, it's not just racial and ethnic minorities, we'll talk about later cisgender women, and we'll talk about older individuals as well. But this is data from, um, from 2018, but these, these disparities still exist. Your, um, uh, you know, of, of the new infections in 2018, 26% were in Black African Americans, and yet um, the uptake of PrEP is so much lower in that population and in Latinx populations um, as well. And if we look at um, in, in the disparities by gender identity, the same sort of um, pattern emerges that MSM are more aware of PrEP and also of higher rates of PrEP, not only initial uptake, but even along the continuum, starting PrEP, concurrently on PrEP, um, higher adherence, and not discontinuing PrEP, this is data from ALU here um, for at COI 2019, MSM have higher rates of, of all of those metrics of the HIV care continuum compared to transgender individuals and non-binary individuals. So there is work in that direction as well. And then um, in terms of, uh, uh, this is just more data that really shows that for trans men, so the data that I've just shown you was for trans women, but um, same with trans men, online survey, and, and these are slides that um, really came out of the, by the way, the uh, HIV work that I think Dr. Scott and Buckbinder both on this call are, are doing, um, but an online survey of trans men also show that only 11% report being up, even though 24.3% were PrEP candidates. Um, and this was published a couple of years ago in Jaleese. So this is data that um, was compiled by the San Francisco DPH and um, Susan had presented to you and uh, presented at CROI a couple of years ago that shows that still kind of PrEP candidates by race and ethnicity, we just continue to have these disparities. So African-American, Latino, and Asian are less represented in our prep uptake and all uh, e even over time um, than white individuals. So the, the problem is I can keep on presenting this kind of data to you and here's, here's one from Kaiser, um, the same idea, um, but it really is about sort of creative solutions, I think, instead of presenting 
you know, data that shows this across multiple networks, including in San Francisco and including in, um, in, uh, in and across the Kaiser healthcare system, for example, in Northern California. So um, Dr. Buckminder already alluded to this, but it isn't just San Francisco. There's really 12 projects that are participating in Project Pride, which is the CDC funded three-year demonstration project. And the idea of this entire project across these 12 jurisdictions are to increase PrEP among MSM of color and transgender persons, given the disparity data that I just showed you. And that enhancing data to care activities means that you use surveillance and then you use people who are, that save surveillance data to identify those who are at risk. That would include, for example, those with STDs, um, including people who access the healthcare system, and then try to relink them into HIV care if they're positive and if they are um, people who uh, don't have HIV um, to, re to link them into PrEP care and to think of programs such as same day PrEP, targeted PrEP outreach, uh, things that are really creative that we've used in ART care. And I'm gonna talk about that when we get to long actings as well. And then these programs need to not just link people into care um, and into practical care, but they need to actually work on this in higher discontinuation rates among black versus white patients, um, because there is the problem of initial uptake and then there is the care continuum that leads to adherence and then fundamentally HIV um, prep persistence. We want that persistence to occur over times of risk. So I really, um, you know, I feel like I'm really repeating some of the, the creativity about um, what uh, Dr. Buckminer and, and, and Dr. Scott are presenting, but it really is, um, if you think about the barriers that are coming, that, that are the most significant barriers to being on PrEP in these in, in different dis uh, disparate populations. Um, one is cost, and so we now are in a situation where TDF-FTC is completely generic, and we will talk about that when we think about same-day prep. We at Ward 86, our plan is to have already purchased TDF-FTC for our patient population, and now our next step is to figure out how to disseminate it in a same-day program in the same way that we disseminated ART in, uh, rapidly in our rapid start program. So we want rapid prep uh, programs. We want, um, we want uh, HIV testing in a rapid way uh, using um, an oral-based test right there on site. And then we want um, to send laboratory tests, but still, for example, like creatinine, but still starting the ART, the prep right there and then, um, given now that we, that we in, low, in a low-income clinic, at least at Ward 86, don't have that prep cost concern with the generic formulation of TDF, FTC. That while we're getting patients on insurance, because a lot of patients uh, present to us without insurance, can circumvent some of the problems before insurance is garnered. Um, and then things about don't want to take a daily pill, of course, we're going to talk about that and have been talked about at this meeting about long acting and concerns about side effects, which I'll go over at least a little bit when we go over the older patient scenario with PrEP. Um, so again, again, lots of creativity here occurring at San Francisco with these different um, SFDPH messaging that are uh, looking and, and messaging and showing uh, culturally um, appropriate uh, pictures and uh, flyers uh, of people who we are trying to reach in the city. And this is really work, again, by some of the people uh, talking on this call. And then uh, Susan just talked about this, but 
really some of the, the good ideas are a pharmacy-led prep program um, so that there's kind of circumventing the barriers of going to a medical clinic, youth-focused efforts. Um, so Travada Emergency Fund, which we have um, here at Ward 86, and we have already literally have our purchases of Travada in stock, and youth prep navigation. Social media um, is incredibly how apparently people interact when they're young. Um, and so working in different um, social media platforms and uh, metrics focused on uh, priority population intake, which involves that surveillance data uh, that, uh, that DPHs have access to actually. Um, and then we are really interested in express visits just because rapid ART has been so successful in a in our safety net population at Ward 86. So our idea, and this is next, um, is again, these same day visits to start pre-exposure prophylaxis where we give people starter packs for their TDF FTC that we have purchased while we are uh, working on insurance for um, more entering coverage. And that is, that is our plan. Um, so, you know, in terms of the CDC guidance, uh, it also doesn't um, yet, you know, I think there's an incredibly important need to focus on cisgender women and, um, and older populations. And though CDC hasn't um, endorsed the 2-1-1 strategy yet, they are planning to. And ISUSA, of course, that sponsors this meeting had endorsed 2-1-1 um, quite a while ago. And so if you think about these populations, um, if we think kind of focusing on cisgender women, which is um, in our city, uh, a very underrepresented population in terms of prep uptake, then sometimes we have to move away from risk assessment, right? Because it really isn't about the risk often of yourself, but it is the risk of your partner and um, risk assessment. We moved away actually for, for HIV testing, the original CDC document for HIV testing uh, that was risk-based and turned to routine-based, you know, was in 1996. So we really are in that edge now in 2021, moving away from risk assessment by um, asking people about their risks and just kind of more of a routinization of, um, of, of prep discussions. Um, because if you don't, you know, have open-ended conversations um, where uh, in your sexual histories, then um, you really may not just by just making assumptions about someone know about, um, you know, different risks or just, just essentially sexual activity that can lead to fundamentally such a basic thing, um, lead to, to the need for PrEP. So, um, this is again data from Hyman, but it's really great way to think of the sexual history with P's. Um, so partners, practices, protection, past SDI history and pregnancy um, and the desire for it. So moving away from PrEP is for people at high risk for HIV to PrEP is a tool. And PrEP is a tool that can be used for anyone um, to control, take control of your sexual health. So that is, I feel like, you know, we all remember the HIV testing shift that we all made, um, and it was so long ago. So we have to make that shift also in the, in the setting of PrEP when we're trying to reach populations that are not yet um, PrEP taking PrEP. And this really applies to older individuals, right? Because older individuals often are just, there's assumptions made um, about sexual activity, about condom use, um, if pregnancy is not a concern um, later in life, 
um, for women, then uh, condom use definitely decreases. Um, and uh, and aging and and you know the need to to get more people who are older living with HIV is really highlighted by the data from the 2018 CDC surveillance data that shows us that older people, of course, are at risk um, for HIV infection. But in older patients, we think about three things. Adherence is actually often better among older patients than younger patients, but then we have to remember about polypharmacy in older patients. And then TDF and FTC and TAF and FD, TDF and TAF both have um, concerns uh, about kidney function and bone density. And um, so thinking about those in older individuals, especially since we have not novel and newer um, modalities that will come out once cabotegravir is approved um, for, um, for prevention, are, are thinking about this in the meantime is really important. And um, so, you know, um, this is a case where someone has come in who is older, 58, has hypertension. He has absolutely a need for PrEP um, and his creatinine is 1.7. And so I'll let you, um, you know, think for a minute about what you would do. Would you prescribe daily TDF-FTC or would you say, okay, well, I think that TAF is safe enough, um, safer enough that I would do that for someone with renal function? Do you think that 211-TDF-FTC um, will actually, he does have frequent sex partners, um, but will decrease our renal um, toxicities, which we don't really know yet, and, um, or should we tell him to use condoms? And this is a thought question for you, but, oh, wow, okay, why don't you actually um, vote? And there's music. So yes, I mean, I think that TAF-FTC is safer for renal function. We don't have data on if 211 is, though it actually makes sense that it would, though someone with frequent sexual exposure may end up getting being on 211 about four doses a week anyway um, by the hypergate data. So it is, it is um, you know, I completely agree that, um, that while we're waiting for our safer options, TAF-FTC is definitely something to do. We just don't have 211 data for example, on TAF-FTC, which would be probably the way to get the minimum of TAF exposure at least in plasma levels. And this is um, data that we collected uh, uh, using hair levels of antiretrovirals, um, but it still holds that really older people who um, are on TDF-FTC regularly, so taking at least by model by their hair levels, and this was modeled in the IPREX-OLA study, um, those who are taking seven pills a week are more likely, especially if they start out with uh, creatinine clearances that are borderline, like this uh, patient here at 61, um, if they start out with uh, borderline creatinine clearance and are adherent to medications seven days a week, which is actually more likely to occur in older individuals, renal function um, actually decreases more in those who are older. Baseline creatinine clearance that's less than 90 and take pills regularly. So you could extrapolate from this that if you take pills, the TDF-FTC less often, that it looks like renal function, at least over time, doesn't decrease as often, uh, doesn't decrease as much. But again, 
from the Ipergate data to 11, taking it less often, we are extrapolating from studies like this that um, seeing overall less to no severe exposure is going to be better for renal health. So, um, and then here is someone um, who's a 50 year old MSM who has sex with new partners. So, again, an older patient, or by some definitions of older, um, with new partners approximately twice per month. And he doesn't want to take a daily pill because his sexual exposures are relatively infrequent, but he doesn't always use condoms. So, what would you do? Um, uh, would you, number one, encourage him to use condoms? No, his exposure is relatively low. So, don't worry about prep. Encourage him to take daily prep. Have them start prep seven days before sexual episodes, or is this the perfect case for two one one? The CDC is about to endorse two one one. Yeah, and so I think that's great. And, um, and you know, this is a, kind of the perfect person. And if we go back to this idea of that taking, if you end up taking two to three pills um, over uh, a week, you know, average two pills over a week or um, two to three pills over a week, you can see that your renal function uh, really appreciates that, at least as determined by long-term exposure. So I think that's a great uh, um, so, you know, um, Dr. Uh, Molina is, is um, you know, really the, the, the lead investigator on the hypergase. So I feel like I don't want to go through uh, this impressive studies and the impressive hypergay um, open label extension studies so that we can get to our final point. But um, it really does lead to less exposure fundamentally of the TDF-FTC, even with frequent um, uh, sex and sex partners, um, as in the original hypergay study, about four doses a week. So that does end up leading to less overall exposure. And I think if we extrapolate from those hair levels, that can be a safer strategy. Um, or the TAF, FTC, um, which right now, of course, is not approved in cisgender women, for example. Um, so we await the CDC is going to um, endorse uh, the 211 soon. ISA USA guidelines did endorse it quite soon after the data came out from the Ipergave study. And then what, where are we with women? Well, daily half FTC is absolutely being studied, um, but it, it's not here yet. Um, it wasn't included in the discovered trial. Cisgender women were not included in that trial. So we don't have data for TAF FTC for vaginal exposures, and that is not included on the list of indications for daily TAF FTC. However, Gilead, um, which is performing a study of their long-acting agent, which is lenacapavir, um, for prevention in women, in Sub-Saharan Africa are also have a TAF FTC arm in that study, um, which is helpful. And we will get that data because um, there are other uh, studies like IMPACT 2010 um, that have been very intriguing, just uh, published in the Lancet by Shaheen Lachman as final author. But in pregnancy, there are some um, elements that look like it's safer to be on TAF FTC. Uh, at least for uh, the fetus than um, TDF FTC. And so if you expand the availability of pre-exposure prophylaxis um, with TAF FTC, pregnancy is such a high risk time that I think it's going to be incredibly important for low-income settings.
So um, again, I've already said this, but um, 211 is not yet for, 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 um, for cisgender women. Um, and uh, that is also, again, if you want to keep your exposure down, that is also an important thing to study in cisgender women. Um, it's really only studied in MSM to date. Um, you do need daily TDF uh, for having chronic hepatitis B. And there are, of course, planning and forgiveness um, uh, issues with, uh, with the 211 strategy, but being planning, having that plan when you know. Okay, so the reason I actually am turning to treatment for a minute in my last couple, uh, little bit is actually to, to extrapolate or make a larger point about muscular hepatitis for prevention, which is the focus of this meeting. So I'm curious for you in this audience, have you started a patient on long-acting art for treatment yet? And remember, it's only been out since May. So if you're still figuring it out, which is number three, or yes or no, or you're waiting for even long-acting art, those are all good questions, uh, answers. This is just an opinion question, but I'm curious if you have started um, ART for long-acting treatment. Okay. And, um, no, and I think that's excellent is the, the highest one because we are still figuring it out actually. And, um, and I wanna bring in some elements of the treatment aspects of cabotegravir to make some larger points about the use of IM cabotegravir, which of course is part of this, um, uh, uh, with Dr. Landowitz, part of this meeting. Um, so again, I'm not gonna go over the data because that's not the point I'm trying to make. You absolutely know the data about um, HPT and 083 and 084, comparing TDF-FTC to intramuscular cabotegravir every eight weeks and finding superiority in both the HPT and 083 MSM transgender women study and in cisgender women, the, um, uh, the 084 study. And the other thing that you uh, very much know at this point um, is that there were failures in HPTN 083. And again, remember cabotegravir is given every eight weeks for, um, for uh, prevention that evolved uh, insti resistance. And so that does have implications for treatment, but there were five out of the 16 uh, uh, failures. Um, one had an undetected HIV infection at baseline um, and uh, three were, uh, two were infected during lead-in and then two were infected even despite on-time injections, but those, all of those five cases emerged in a way multiple uh, resistance mutations, including to the ropivirine, uh, sorry, including to the cabotegravir component. These are all cabotegravir um, mutations, of course. Remember E138 gets confusing because it looks like a ropivirine mutation, but that is, a, that is also an integrase gene mutation. And then if you look at Atlas, 2M and, um, and uh, which is the every eight weeks for treatment. Again, not the focus of this talk, but I wanted to remind you that um, we do have uh, INSTI mutations that emerged there as well, more readily than in the four weeks administration of IM treatment. Um, this is all the mutations, uh, the table that puts together all the mutations, INSTI mutations that emerged. Just look at the second column in FLARE, which was of course, FLARE was the um, treatment experienced every four weeks, Atlas, uh, sorry, treatment naive, Atlas was treatment experienced every four weeks, Atlas 2M was going out from four weeks to eight weeks for treatment administration, um, uh, HBTN 083 I already told you about, and then the white is Atlas four weeks. And you can see that 
really it's this eight week aspect that seems to, even with on-time injections, in certain risk, in certain patient, uh, participants, there is an emergence of INSTE resistance. And so um, what are the factors for development of CAB resistance, at least in the treatment trials? Because I wanna remind us of this when we think about who are we gonna be comfortable putting on every eight week prevention or uh, treatment? Was it being late for injections, which is, um, and we can actually bring up the, the slide, was it having proviral ropivirine mutations? Uh, 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 remember, these are the treatment trials. Was it having HIV clade B? Was it 816? Or was it having a high body mass index of 30? Um, or is it answers one, two, and five, or two, four, and five? And please vote. Okay, so the majority of you said one, two, and five, being late for injections, proviral repivirine resistance mutations and body mass index of 30. You are actually right, except that it's two, four, and five, um, meaning the, the BMI was true and, um, and so was having proviral repivirine resistance mutations. But this data from AIDS um, that was just published very recently, looking at the treatment trials, Flare Atlas and Atlas 2M, look like the three major risk factors were having a HIV subtype of A1, presence of the proviral arbipivirine rams and a higher BMI. So there's something about cabotegravir that maybe it distributes um, more in tissues with higher BMIs. Um, so we have to remember that when we're going to turn towards cabotegravir for our prevention, we can extrapolate from treatment here. There is something about A1 that, um, that uh, which we don't have that subtype is the prominent one in the United States. We have, sub, uh, we have clade B, but remember that with cabotegravir. And then of course, totally makes sense. If you had proviral recovering mutations that you didn't know about, you're gonna be more likely to fail cabotegravir recovering for treatment. So the reason I bring up treatment is because I, we have really been waiting for long-acting ARV treatment, not just for the highly adherent, not just for what Flair and Atlas um, both looked at in as the inclusion criteria in their trials and what's in the package insert, which was kind of perfect patients in a way. They were all, the Flair, remember, was the naive uh, trial and you had to be um, uh, you had to be virologically suppressed on a dolichegavir or a or 3TC regimen for at least 16 weeks. Then you went over to an oral lead-in for 28 days of cabotegravir pivoting, and then you uh, got to start on your injectables, though there was a subset of participants who went direct to inject from dolichegavir uh, 3TC and bacavir and did fine. And then you had to kind of come in and, you know, you, they really weren't one week uh, past their uh, regimen, um, at least in the four-week trials. So, Sure, it's going to work for patients who are tired of taking oral pills and highly adherent, but what about the poorly adherent patients? Because where, who have other challenges to coming in, other challenges to taking oral pills, because this is going to extrapolate to using IM cabotegravir every eight weeks when it gets approved um, for prevention. If we're interested in older patients because of side effects, are we interested in those who have challenges to coming in? And so I want to tell you about a treatment case, but I have, oh, I only have a minute or so more. So I'm not going to actually go through the case, but I'm going to tell you, um, I'm actually going to tell, even though this is a very interesting case, um, but this case is someone who 
I had in my um, clinic population who we ended up deciding to um, start uh, 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 intramuscular um, every four weeks treatment for, and he didn't fit any of the criteria of flare and atlas. He had a high viral load before he started of over 500,000. He had a CD4 count of 18. Um, he had actually one cabotegravir uh, mutation and 155, but he absolutely could not take oral pills for a variety of reasons, including methamphetamines. So I actually did start him on uh, I am cabotegravir and ropivirine and very poorly adhered otherwise, have multiple challenges. He's now on his seventh dose um, and he is doing great. And I literally saw him in clinic yesterday and he is feeling over the moon. Seventh dose uh, perpetually went, came down from higher than 5,000 to less than 30. Um, and has had three viral loads that's less than 30. So why does that have clinical relevance for intramuscular cabotegravir? I think that we should be brave enough to try it in patients who really, as long as they can come in every eight weeks uh, for their injection, that we should be brave enough to try it. We have done this with our treatments. Um, of course, in treatment, we absolutely mandate that they have to demonstrate that they come in every four weeks. That is our only inclusion criteria for our pilot project at Ward 86 um, for the um, use of IM Capitagra-Vilvapivri. So we, I hope that we're going to be able to use this as a major um, um, aspect for people of concomitant challenges in life. And then I will not actually talk about the newer long-acting ones that are coming because they're not here yet, but they are going to also be profoundly exciting for our disparate populations. Um, thank you.